Hi everyone, I'm Jill Campbell, the Head of Investor Relations for ANZ. Welcome to all of you listening to today's discussion, which accompanies ANZ's release of its first half 2021 financial results. As we always do, we've released a number of materials today via the ASX, all of which are also available on the ANZ website in the Shareholder Centre. Our CEO and acting CFO present the results to the market and a slide pack accompanies that presentation. You might find it useful to refer to that slide pack after listening to this interview. The presentation which occurs at 10am is taped and it's available for replay on our website. I'm speaking today with our Chief Risk Officer Kevin Corbley and our Acting CFO Shane Buggle, covering some areas of interest to those of you looking to delve a little deeper into several areas of the result. I'm going to start with you, Shane. ANZ announced an increased dividend today. Dividends ultimately are a board decision. What kinds of factors do the management team and the board weigh up in making those decisions? Thanks, Jill. Look, at the outset, I think it's important to say that the board, and indeed management, are very aware of how much shareholders value dividends. We know that last year, the reduced dividend was really hard on lots of our shareholders. In this half, the dividend decision was required the weighing up of a few factors our capital levels, and within that, the level of capital generation, which reflects how our business is travelling. And of course, the level of credit provisions held is an important consideration given the environment we're in. We know the market value is a level of predictability and sustainability in dividend flows, so we're pleased to be able to move closer to our longer-term payout ratio and to fully frank the dividend. The environment, though, is still unpredictable. We saw another snap lockdown in WA only recently, and the world is a long way from being out of the woods. While Australia and New Zealand have come through well so far, some conservatism was warranted. I also want to say that shareholders should see the dividend announced today as a sign the group is well-placed. Well, last year, and actually a few times now, ANZ has returned capital. Given that the group's sitting at 12.5% CT1 on a pro forma basis, will we do that again? Look, capital efficiency remains a key element of ANZ's strategy, and you've seen the group's focus on that over the last five years, and I think we can say we've been a good steward of capital. As you say, our CET ratios are comfortably above APRA's unquestionably strong benchmark, about $7 billion above it, in fact. So clearly we have some flexibility to consider capital management if the capital isn't required in the business or there aren't reinvestment opportunities. However, there's still a fair bit of uncertainty across the various economies we operate in, and being strongly capitalised is important. For example, we won't see the full impact of, at the end of JobKeeper for a few months, and there are parts of the economy that are having a harder time. So we have to balance a strong capital position and desire for capital efficiency with where we are in this cycle, and that balance is something we continue to discuss. Thanks, Shane. I'm, I'm going to move to you now, Kevin. Uh, ANZ released a net 491 million of provisions today, credit provisions. It's quite amazing, isn't it, if you think back to this time last year. Can you walk through the thinking behind that outcome? Sure. And and just to clarify, that net $491 million provision release that you refer to is comprised of a $678 million collective provision release, which is offset by a $187 million individual provision charge. Right. And, and there's, a, there's a number of balancing factors here which have to be weighed up. We come into this financial year in a, in a strong position, both from a capital and a provisioning perspective, 
And, you know, we're now at 12.5% common equity tier one ratio, and we've got $5.1 billion in total provision balances, which includes $4.3 billion in collective provision balances at the end of the first half. And you may recall last year, I mentioned we had a, a relatively new accounting standard uh, referred to as AASB9, which applies to all banks, and, and it required us to hold provisions for future losses, not only due to circumstances today, but also due to how we expect the economy to evolve in the future. So that's a, a more of a forward-looking assessment, and I, I think I referred to it as setting money aside uh, for the future rainy day that you may or may not need. Now, we put on $1.7 billion of additional provision charges between March and September last year for that rainy day. And look, essentially, it hasn't rained as much as we thought it might. So through the first half of this year, we've released about a third of that increase from last year. Now, the improved economic outlook, noting you know that there's, this is relative to what were pretty dire estimates this time last year, gives us comfort to release some of that build-up in provisions. The economy, and, and then by definition, many of our customers, both big and small, are currently appearing to be in a much better place than was anticipated at the same time last year. And we also saw some portfolio reductions in, in exposure at the fault during the half, l- largely in institutional, as well as improved trading conditions across a number of sectors, which have resulted in improvement in our risk ratings of both our institutional and elements of our commercial and retail customer base. Nevertheless, though, we, we thought it was prudent and appropriate to hold on to a significant amount of the build-up, given, as Shane just mentioned a few moments ago, we're not out of the woods yet. Okay, so let's go into that last comment just a little bit more, if you could expand on it. You, what kinds of things would you need to see? What are you looking for that would give you more comfort to perhaps release some more provision in the future? Sure. Look, remember, we, we struck our provision estimates at the end of March. There was then, and, and quite frankly, there still are, a number of uncertainties. So, for example, JobKeeper, JobSeeker had only just finished. The deferral program for mortgage and, and commercial customers had just finished. Brisbane had actually announced a lockdown. Uh, and looking back, the, the volatility in economic outlook over the last year has been quite extraordinary. I mean, I think about this time last year, and even September last year, I should say, our economists thought housing prices would decline by, by 9% yeah. this year. Now the expectation is up by 17%. And, and as a management team, together with the board, you know, we have to shepherd, shepherd through that and strike some sort of balance. And additionally, other factors like the speed of vaccine rollout, sporadic snap lockdowns and, and events happening offshore all have to be considered. And while things are definitely way better in Australia and New Zealand than they were this time last year, th- this is an extreme event and there's quite a bit yet to play out. So we want to exercise some caution, notwithstanding the strong capital and provision balance that I mentioned before. Okay. So... With banks like ANZ, well, any of the big banks and small banks, they have what are called internal risk models that have to deal into these kinds of situations. How does a model deal into this? Look, in what I suppose I'd call normal or relatively benign economic conditions, the models that we use to calculate our, our expected credit loss work well You know, for our provision estimates. The models were not calibrated to deal with the extreme economic movements that we've seen the last 12 months. Um, we moderated our economic scenario weights so there was reduced weighting to the base case, which is, you know, our base case is somewhat at the optimistic end of consensus forecasts. 
and we increased the weightings to the downside with some additional provisions that we held on to to reflect the, the higher risk associated with our models under those volatile economic conditions. We also took a small increase in our management overlays to reflect the fact that our, our model delinquency numbers don't reflect the substantial deferral support packages that have assisted our customers. And, and we reevaluate the effectiveness of the model delinquency peaks every quarter. And in this case, we took an additional $50 million increase to overlays that are held predominantly for our mortgage and small business books. So, so stepping back and thinking about you know, where the economy's at, especially relative to last year, how many of our customers have returned to normal payments post the, the payment deferrals, but also the level of volatility and, and uncertainty that still exists. We believe our current provision levels are prudent and appropriate, and you know, we're comfortable with the level of the release. Thank you. So we've, most of what we've just talked about is really about what we'd call collective provision. If we talk a little bit now about individual provision, because that tends to be the, the money you do lose, it was quite a bit lower this half, and we saw this in the quarter as well, than the longer term. How should we think about that? Look, the first step is to, to think about the composition of the individual provision charge. It's actually an aggregate of provisions taken for newly impaired exposures, increases in provisions that we hold for existing impaired exposures, and then any write-backs or recoveries that we receive as part of our workout activities. And essentially in the half, write-backs and recoveries were basically in line with the last two halves and substantially offset provisions that we raised for new impaireds. And increase impaireds were a relatively small component of the provision charge for the half. So look, there's no question this is abnormally low. You know, For example, over the last seven or eight halves, we would average around $400 million and a half. And I think this reflects a few things. Importantly, it reflects the fact that our larger customers are in a much better financial position. And also, unquestionably, I think it reflects the ongoing work on reducing our risk profile and improving the credit quality of our book, not not just in in our institutional business uh, over the last number of years. In addition, it clearly also reflects the government's support by way of various programs you know, over the course of last year and earlier into this year, and also the deferral programs that the banks provided. And these last two factors provided customers, I think, with valuable time to navigate the first stages of the crisis. Absolutely. Thank you. And Shane, I'm going to go back to you now. We'll talk about margins. Good margin performance in the first half. When you, when you look through it, what were the drivers? Thanks, Jill. Look, it is a good margin performance. In, in fact, it is the best margin performance in the decade. The margin was up six basis points in the half or three basis points to 160 basis points on an underlying basis. And importantly, the margin was up in each of our divisions. This outcome is in line with the outlook provided at both the full year 20 uh, result and the first quarter trading updates. And so over the period, we've had to manage across a number of competing factors and the trading environment both helped and hurt. And there's a chart in the pack which will step you through what I'm just about to talk through. Right. And I recommend people you know, look, have a look at that. So we saw a negative three basis points impact from low rates on capital and replicated deposits, net of repricing after the standing variable cash rate change. We also saw a negative three basis points impact arising from holding higher liquid assets. The higher liquids meant we were able to reduce our reliance on the RBA's committed liquidity facility. And so while negative for margins, it's actually a positive for returns. 
Asset margins improved two basis points, and that was the outcome of better institutional lending margins, somewhat offset by competitive pressures in home lending. There was a mixed benefit primarily in de- liabilities, and specifically we saw higher accrual deposits, which were up 5% on average. And finally, we benefited from uh, good deposit management across all bi- pricing across all businesses, as well as lower wholesale funding costs. Together, those two items drove a four-basis ba- four point benefit. The drag on margins that comes from what, what gets called in the industry replicating deposits has been pretty persistent, and this is for the sector, not just ANZ. And you've mentioned it in your commentary that it might be lower in the next half. Can you walk through why? Yeah, it's a really good question. So just standing back, thinking about that portfolio, the tenor of that portfolio is three to five years. And so the sector has seen headwinds, a headwind arise as maturing tranches are replaced by new tranches at lower interest rates. We called out, as you said, a three basis point impact for first half 21, and that's precisely where we came in. In the second half, we think the impact will be more like one basis point, and that's for a couple of reasons. The first is the impact of the older tranches rolling off relative to the current investment yields is reducing, so the delta between the two is reducing. And secondly, with rates moving higher recently, there's been an opportunity to invest deposit growth over the last 12 months at better yields out of the five-year swap, which reduces the NIM drag. We'll update on how we're seeing FY22 at the full-year results. Sure. The the area of deposits looks like it's been a benefit, and again, this is the, the sector, not just ANZ. Is there much more that you can do in that space? Yeah, you're right. Deposit growth in the system was strong last year off the back of the higher level of government assistance, and the lockdowns limited people's activity uh, as well. So we've seen our customers, and, and that's pretty much across the board, behaving conservatively and responsibly and building up buffers, if you like. You would have to imagine sector deposit growth, given it's coming off that much elevated base, will moderate in the second half, although households will see the benefit of tax refunds, and it's possible that stronger credit growth will assist businesses. Opportunities to do more repricing deposits are reducing, although we will see the full half benefit in the second half from repricing done in the first half. Okay. If we go to costs now, so still with you, Shane, um, another good cost outcome, and this has become something that ANZ's built up a bit of a track record on. When you look at the results travel through this half, what do you see? How does that work? Well, you're right. Strong cost management has been a key element of ANZ's broader strategy since the start of financial year 16. And through that period, we've delivered consistent absolute cost reductions in expenses, and that's over the five-year period. So the way we think about it is to focus on continuing to reduce the running, what we call the running the costs, running the business costs, so that we can increase investment in what we call our accelerated strategy, without increasing the overall cost base. And if you're just for FX, total costs were down one percent for the half, after absorbing around twenty-five million of inflation. That savings that we uh, generated in, in running the business costs helped us absorb an increase in people costs as we responded to extra demand related to COVID, which was additional call centre staff, for example, and some higher leave costs that included granting extra leave to staff as recognition for their efforts through COVID. As I mentioned, we've continued to invest through the savings we've got from the running the business, and we've invested in digital channels, process automation, optimising our property footprint and simplifying end-to-end processes.
broadly, if you think about it, this is the work to be able to deliver faster, better, cheaper services to our customers over time and a better experience for our teams and staff. Okay. And just finishing up, when when you think about the $8 billion uh, cost-based ambition that, that ANZ has, uh, are the drivers of that, so I guess the path from here, are they any any different to the, the, the way that the costs have been structured over the last five years? Or is it a case of just building on what we've already done? Yes, the latter. The premise is exactly the same. Continue to work away on reducing, running the business costs so we can invest. We have, as you said, Jill, a really good track record in this, a real discipline in the organisation. It is now, after five years, part of the DNA <laughs> it's, it's thing. of the organisation. It's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So finding headroom to increase investment is important as this drives real benefits, and not only in terms of cost, but importantly in customer experience and operational risk and reducing operational risk. The straighter through and more automated processes, the, straight, the more automated the processes are and the more straight through they are, the less manual intervention is required and so less chance of an error or delay. Our customer expectations have continued to evolve and we're evolving along with them. We want banking to be as an easy experience given it's such an important part of our customers' lives. Absolutely. So thanks to both of you. Uh, and that's the end of our session today. As I've mentioned to those of you listening, there's uh, quite a bit of material available on our website around the results. So please make sure to have a look at that. Thank you.